Well, good evening, Hallows Church. Let's try that one more time. Good evening, Hallows Church. I think uh, most of, yes, that's right, good afternoon. I just, I just corrected Pastor Andrew on that. Yes, evening begins at 5 p.m., so let's try that one more time. Good afternoon, Hallows Church. <laughs> I think most of our uh, young disciples have been dismissed already, but uh, that is an option at this time. So uh, if you want to head off to kids ministry, you can head in that direction and perhaps somebody will come back down and meet you. But, uh, or one of our adult leaders can uh, escort our remaining little disciples up there as they might be on their way. Uh, well, my name is Bryant and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church giving oversight uh, to matters of administration as well as uh, overseeing or leading our music ministry teams and our missional communities. Uh, grateful to have the opportunity to serve alongside uh, the other pastors in the life of our church, like Pastor Andrew, also here in our Fremont Expression, Matt Hudson, uh, Jason Mall, and George San Miguel. It's our privilege to lead our church family in the way we do by providing uh, prayer coverage and pastoral care and uh, oversight in various ways in the life of our church. Uh, it's also my privilege to lead out in our study of the scriptures today as we look at our next installment of our summer teaching series, Drawing Near, Engaging God Through a Study of His Attributes. And today's study will be based on the passage that our friend Kim read a few moments ago. Now, so far through this series, we've been able to consider various aspects of God's nature nature or his attributes. And as even uh, my family and I have had an opportunity to travel, as many of us do over the course of the summer, uh, maybe not all of us have been here for each installment of the study. So just to catch us up uh, in where we've been, we've had the opportunity to consider the openness of God. And in that, we saw how he has revealed or disclosed himself to us through creation, through conscience, through the scriptures, and most fully through the person of Jesus Christ. We've considered the beauty of God and how beholding the beauty of his character, his attributes, his actions, that, that becomes our fuel for living and flourishing in gospel-saturated lives. We've considered the grace of God and how it's oftentimes disorienting and unsettling at how good God is to us when we know how much we certainly don't deserve it. We've also explored and considered the pursuit of God and how he is relentless to seek and to save the lost. We dived into the scriptures and considered uh, the providence of God, where we saw that God's providence is often quiet and subtle, sometimes humorous, but it's always redemptive and purposeful. We then considered how the love of God demonstrated through the death of Christ and supplied through the gift of the Holy Spirit merits a response of faith, the results of which are peace and assurance with him. We explored a weighty matter, the judgment of God. We saw how we need a judgment day more than we realize, but we can stand before the judge with confidence because he is the righteous one. He is just and he is faithful and true. Last week, we considered the sufficiency of God, and we saw that the fruit of faith in the sufficiency of God, or what I would like to call the enoughness of God, the fruit of that is contentment. Today, we want to continue our study and explore, uh, consider the enjoyment of God. And I trust and am trusting that the Holy Spirit will help us to see that God takes great joy 
and bringing about the work of redemption and how the Father delights in all those who trust in the gospel in the same way he does his son, Jesus. Would you pray with me tonight, church? God, we are so grateful for your goodness, for your mercy, for your kindness, for your love. And thank you for the providence of the scriptures. Thank you that you have so chosen to reveal yourself and to continually, generation after generation, instruct your people in your ways. Show us what you are like. Show us your purposes for us that we might step forward in faith and the power of the Holy Spirit and live out the reality that you have created us for. Tonight, we ask that you would still our hearts of any and every distraction that might uh, be upon us, any anxiety in our hearts. We pray that you would silence every voice that would distract us from what you are saying to us in this moment. And we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that as we leave this place, we would apply these realities, apply these gospel truths to our life, and that the fruit of it would be that we would proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one of the fun aspects of this series has been that we've uh, featured an artistic rendition each week by disciples from across the expressions of our faith family as they have meditated upon each one of these attributes or the topics that we have been exploring. Today's rendering is from Nanette Sakanashi of our West Seattle expression. And she's offered us this piece featured here and featured up here, entitled Sea Like Crystal. Her inspiration was drawn from the Westminster, Westminster Catechism, uh, Psalm 63, 2, Psalm 145, verse 3, and Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And of it, she says this, as I meditated on the theme of today's teaching, the enjoyment of God, the main scene that kept coming to mind was the throne room talked about in Revelation. What other place in the cosmos represents pure communion and relationship and worship? The fact that the four living creatures never cease their song of adoration means there is something about the throne room and the lamb seated there that is literally infinitely interesting, compelling, almost unbearably wonderful. To me, this is what the Westminster Catechism is getting at when it says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So from that passage in Revelation 4, Annette says, I took imagery of this sea like glass and crystal, reflecting and refracting all the colors and light and beauty of the throne room. I'd like to thank Nanette for this artistic response to God's revelation. Any response to revelation is an act of worship. And so thank you for this act of worship as you have offered it to our faith family. And I'd like to encourage you to take time at the conclusion of our gathering to get a closer glimpse of what she's offered to us, as well as some of the other offerings from Disciples in the Life of Our Church over these past several weeks that are featured along the back wall. Today we turn our attention to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. Now, as a caveat, it's always dangerous for me to deviate from my notes, but I've, I, I've successfully uh, done this twice today. So earlier in my discipleship, uh, I found myself in church one Sunday uh, reading through the table of contents of my Bible, and uh, I was searching for potential names for my future children. 
and I stumbled across this little uh, book in the Old Testament. Uh, and of course, being young in my discipleship, not knowing how to pronounce it well, I thought it was a fantastic name for my future daughter one day, Zephania. And then as I grew in my understanding and my discipleship and learned how to pronounce it, I realized it was not Zephania, but it was Zephaniah. But fortunately, God has blessed me with a wonderful wife who would not have allowed me to name our daughter Zephania anyway. <laughs> so today we turn our attention to the Old Testament prophecy of Zephaniah, not Zephania. And he's categorized as a minor prophet. Not because it has a lower priority or status than any of the major prophets like that of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or even Isaiah, but it's called a minor prophet because of its size. But trust and believe me that this book, even though it's three chapters, it packs a powerful punch. Zephaniah is pregnant with the gospel, pregnant with gospel hope. You see, the nations, and particularly the people of Israel, for a long time, for many, many years, lived in rebellion against the Lord our God. And here in this book, in the earlier section of it, in the first two chapters, it is just steeped with a warning before the people because God is serving them notice that because of your rebellion, I am bringing judgment upon you. Now, I say this book is pregnant with the gospel because before the gospel can truly be good news, which is what gospel means, we must have an understanding of the weight of judgment that we are under and our need to get away out. The good news that comes in the end of this prophecy, as we'll study it in these next few verses, can be summed up by the words of the late pastor theologian R.C. Sproul, who once said, the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the one who saves us. This little book, though heavy with the weight of judgment, gives us cause for celebration in a God who finds his enjoyment, who finds great enjoyment in bringing about the work of redemption of a people for his own possession. So as we look to our text in chapter 3, the first thing we see is that God's passion is to restore all that has been distorted because of sin, namely us. Now, in the beginning, God created the world in six days. And on the sixth day, he, he finished up his work with his magnus opus, which is mankind, humanity, us. There's nothing in all creation like us in that we bear the image of God. We are like him which I think is the reason why the temptation in Genesis 3-5 is both ridiculous and ingenious. When the serpent came to the woman, he proposed something that was doubly ridiculous and ingenious. Ridiculous because the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, were already like God. Which in that regard, the, the temptation that he laid before them should not have been a temptation in the first place. The scriptures tell us that God gave them dominion over all his creations and over all his creation. And theologians call this co-regency, meaning that they were ruling with him or ruling under him. So he, he had nothing more to offer them. But the ingenious dynamic of what the serpent said is that if they ate of the fruit of the tree that God had commanded them not to eat from, they would be like God in that they would be able to define or determine what is right or wrong. They would be the determinants of truth. 
This was the great temptation. And it still is today. We want to be the authors of truth in our life. We see that rampant in our culture and our society today. It was not enough to rule God's creation under him or alongside him. It was not enough to have access to all that God had created. It was not even enough to have access to God himself. What man wanted in that moment, the great temptation, was not to be like God, but to be God. The lie was also further ridiculous because in the end of the day, this could never have happened to begin with. Believing this lie is what plunged humanity and the whole of creation into brokenness, what we know of as the fall. We see this unfold at the very beginning of the Bible. And when this happened, God did not skip a beat. He immediately put a plan into place to begin the process to restore humanity and to restore all of creation back to his original design. He wanted to eradicate all the destruction, all the brokenness that was wrought by the fall. The mission was to rescue mankind, the very image bearers of God. You see, he made mankind, humankind, the pinnacle of creation. We were the ones that he had entrusted with dominion over his creation. We were the ones that he had charged to subdue and to cultivate the earth so there might be flourishing for everything that lived in it. This was our birthright. But not valuing, not rightly seeing what was already within our grasp, we began to reach for something that we were never purposed for to begin with. And in that very moment, we sold our birthright and plunged ourselves into a slavery that we would never be able to free ourselves from. Believing this lie precipitated or ushered in death. And it continues to happen on a daily basis even now. Each and every time we believe the lie that the enemy is deceiving us, that there is something better for us than what God has, sin enters in and death begins to wreak havoc in every area of our life. Because of sin, our hearts are are bent towards independence from God. We would rather believe and pursue any and every option possible, each and every one of them a lie, rather than humbly submit and surrender to the creator and sustainer of all life. But the good news that the Lord declares for us from the prophet Zephaniah tonight, beginning in verse 9, is this. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. Since believing the lie in Genesis 3, there have been alternatives to the truth. Pluralism entered into the world on that day. And I believe Romans 1 is a prime example in the scriptures of the debauchery that ensues when there is a rejection of the truth and a full-on embracing of an alternative. In restoring pure speech to the peoples, God means to restore truth. Truth about what? Truth that there is only one God and that people are to worship him only. Truth that according to Deuteronomy 32, he is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. And the truth about ourselves, that we have not upheld or kept the commandments of God and are deserving of his judgment. It is through this work of of restoring pure speech that he begins the work of redemption. That he begins opening our eyes to the truth, making it possible for us to call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a singular purpose. 
This should remind us of the promise spoken through the Apostle Paul some 700 years later after this prophecy was given, where he says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God goes on to say through the prophet that he will gather his people from the places they have been dispersed to. Why? So they might bring an offering to him. This causes my mind to go to a place in John's Gospel, chapter 4, where Jesus is having an encounter with a woman by a watering well in a place called Samaria. They have uh, quite the lengthy discussion and they cover various topics from uh, her no longer coming to this well to get water because anytime she gets water from this well, she'll thirst again, but Jesus can give her access to water where she'll never thirst. And he even delves off into matters of her private or personal life, uh, asking and inquiring, quite frankly, reading her mail about who she has been romantically involved in and even presently is. Jesus covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. But where Jesus lands the plane in this conversation is on the matter of worship. You see, because of religious pluralism, the question had arisen among the people of Samaria, known as the Samaritans and the Jews, as to where the place of worship, where the proper place of worship was to be. Listen to what Jesus says to this lady. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, in spirit and with pure speech. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, the enjoyment of God is rooted in his passion to restore all that has been distorted, all that has been broken, all that has been shattered by sin. And he begins that work by bringing us to a place of being able to acknowledge and to embrace the truth. It is only through embracing God's truth that we might call upon his name, serve him with a single purpose, and bring an acceptable offering to him. Now, when he does what only he can do, the work of redemption leaves us humble before, but at the same time confident in God alone. You see, the amazing thing about God's grace can be found in the next verses of Zephaniah. Look with me at chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. He says, On that day you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebelling against me. For I will remove from among you your jubilant, arrogant people, and you will never again be haughty. You will never again be proud. You will never again be boastful on my holy mountain or in his presence. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge. They will find a safety place. They will find a hiding place in the name of the Lord. On that day, what day is that? I believe that day is the day that he begins to restore pure speech. It's the day that we begin to call upon the name of the Lord. It's the day that we are able to offer an acceptable sacrifice of worship. And all of this is made possible through his work of redemption in our lives. 
On that day, he says that you will not be put to shame because of everything you have done in rebellion against me. That's cause for us to say hallelujah. This is what amazing grace sounds like. This is what amazing grace tastes like. This is what amazing grace looks like. This is amazing, what amazing grace feels like. I'm appealing to every sense that you have. This is amazing grace that God would not count our sins against us. The Apostle Paul declares in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, has delivered you from the law of sin and death. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Let me say that again. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 9, this is the message, this is the gospel, this is the good news that we have heard from him and we declare, we deliver to you. That God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and we are not practicing the truth. We are not speaking with pure speech. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, if we look to an alternative truth, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth, God's pure speech is not in us. Here's the good news of the gospel. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God about who he is, if we agree with God about what we have done, if we agree with God about who that has made us, if we agree with God about what his righteous requirement is and the extent to which he has gone to rescue us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, tonight, this should cause us to sing with a new passion, with a new fervor, a new joy. The second stanza of Horatio Spafford's uh, great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, where he writes, My sin, my sin, oh the bliss, oh the joy, oh the gladness of this glorious thought. What is that thought? The thought is my sin, not part of it, but all of it. Zephaniah says, everything you have done in rebellion against me, against the Lord, your God is nailed to the cross. And so I bear it no more. I wear it no more. I own it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Amen, church. But God's not done yet. He goes on to say through the prophet, I will leave a meek and humble people among you. And they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will pasture or they will find pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. 
I will make them a new people. They will no longer look as they did before because of the work I will bring about in them. You see, the work of redemption, embracing the gospel through faith, it makes us a humble people. We have nothing to be proud of. We have nothing to boast in except Jesus and his work alone. Because in embracing the gospel truth, we know that we have no one to rescue us apart from the very one we have offended deeply. And we are absolutely at his mercy. But praise his holy name. He is merciful. It's been said, and I have even said it from this platform, that we owed a debt we could not pay. And in mercy, in our place, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God proves, he demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, as we saw in our reflection, it further declares that he, God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus Christ the righteous, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness in him. And because of this work of redemption, there's a restoration of relationship. There is a restoration of fellowship. What was lost in Eden through the work of redemption, through the cross of Jesus, restoration takes place. We are born again of the Spirit of God to a living hope, and God adopts us as his children. And as such, we are not only humbled by his love and mercy, But as we know and find that he is a good, good father, even as we have declared in worship through song, we find our rest in him and we have no fear. Why? Because 1 John 4, 4 tells us, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. You have conquered the world. You have conquered the spirits of this age because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You have no need to fear. Paul tells Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear. Fear does not come from him. He has given us a spirit of love, of a sound mind. This is the work of redemption. This is the enjoyment of our God. And lastly tonight, I want want us to see that God accomplishes the work of redemption in us. And so our glad response should be that of rejoicing. Now, the word accomplish, I use that intentionally because to accomplish something means to achieve or to complete it successfully. And in that regard, our salvation is a work that God not only initiates, but it is a work that he also successfully brings into full completion. Paul encourages the church at Philippi with these words. I am sure of this. I am confident that he who started a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the gospel truth. This is good news that our salvation, the redemption work that God began in us, he didn't just start it and leave it up to us to make it to the end. He doesn't leave it in our hands to bring it to completion, but he who started it will carry it through. So this evening, there might be some here struggling with assurance in your relationship with God. 
You might feel as though you are not performing well or not well at all as a Christian. Because of that, you doubt God's goodness towards you. You wonder if he'll be faithful to keep his promise because you have not been faithful to him. Well, I'm here today to bring you the good news of the gospel, and it is this, that there is nothing you can do to earn more of God's love, his affection, and there is nothing you can do that will cause him to love you any less. Our righteousness, our approval, our standing before him is not rooted in our ability to live up to his righteous requirement. Jesus and Jesus alone did that. But the grace that we have received is that through faith in Christ, his righteousness has been imputed. It has been given to us as he stood and suffered the wrath of God in our place. God declares to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, this is a demonstration that he will never cease loving his people. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have loved you, past tense, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued to extend faithful love to you. And Paul admonishes his young protege, Timothy, with this trustworthy saying in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. And in his letter to the church at Ephesus, Paul says these words. Let this ring in your heart, church. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He, God, predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. See, these deep gospel truths resonate with Zephaniah's exhortation in verses 14 and 15, where he says to the people of Israel, Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Sing loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem, for the Lord has removed your punishment. The Lord has taken away your punishment, and he has turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is among you. He is with you. He is in your midst. Therefore, you need no longer fear harm. The work of redemption is our reason for rejoicing. We no longer have fear. Why? Because perfect love casts out all fear. Our God, our King, the Lord himself is in our midst, demonstrating as his children, he is for us. And then the prophecy in our study this afternoon concludes saying this, on that day, on that day when God brings his work of redemption into your hearts. On that day will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. You see, church, tonight, the enjoyment of God is not only in bringing the work of redemption 
into fruition. But the enjoyment of God is wrapped up in the ones whom he redeems. God enjoys, yes, bringing about the reality of seeing us rescued from sin and death, but he rejoices in us. He delights in us. He enjoys us as a father does his children. He's crazy about us. And in that, we can have great confidence in who he is. We can have great joy to live the life that he calls us toward, trusting that all he does is right, all he does is just, all he does is good, all that he does is for his glory, and all that he calls us into is for our joy. This is the enjoyment of our God. Would you pray with me tonight, church? God, we are grateful to find in the scriptures that you are just, you are righteous, that you will execute judgment against sin. And we give you praise that you are just, but we praise you that you are merciful, you're kind, you're loving. You pursue us. You woo us even. And you begin a work of redemption in us that no one else can do and no one else can bring to completion. For that, we are humble. We worship you with our, with our hearts bowed low to the ground. But we stand and we lift our arms. We lift our eyes to the heavens. We, we give you praise in what you have done for us through the cross of Jesus. We ask that you would continue to help us to realize these deep truths, that we might live in light of their realities, that we might live proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into the marvelous light, the one who caused us to move from death to life, the one who has caused us to be born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus. God, thank you that you enjoy not only bringing about this work of redemption, but you enjoy us. And in that, we can find great joy in our relationship with you. Where we lack faith to believe that, God, we ask that you would help us, help our faith to increase. Help us to believe what you say about us in the scriptures. Help us not to believe the lies, the alternative truths of this world, but help us to press in to the pure speech that you provide through the scriptures. God, we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.